it may be appropriate for us to explain to you why it's warm in here. This was the first day of our uh, new season, and the machine broke down. Uh, must have scared that thing. And uh, so we found out late this afternoon that the reason it never came on this morning was that it was the compressor was coming on and off and on and off all day. So we're going to have to do some work on it. We apologize and ask you to bear with us as we work on uh, we're not asking forgiveness because we don't think we sinned in it, but we ask you to uh, be tolerant of us as we labor to put this right. Uh, and yet you can take off your coats earlier than I can. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sure that it was apparent to you this morning even though we did grow, go beyond the hour in preaching, that we could dwell upon the subject that was our concern this morning much more than we did. We could make endless applications, nearly, and no doubt could speak to the conscience of many of us with more in-depth searching of these things. But we thought it wise tonight to move on to the other side of this text in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. For you who are visiting and were not able to be with us this morning, we address the subject of brethren forgiving brethren, having a spirit or a heart of forgiveness, forgiving each other, living in that participial holiness of the disposition of forgiveness. Tonight we will concentrate on the last portion of verse 32. Having been told to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, we are told in this passage that it is even as God also in Christ forgave you that we are to be this way. In other words, the ground and the limits and the manner by which we are to forgive one another is that God, in Christ, has forgiven us. Let's bow again and pray. Our Father in heaven, we often assume that when we pray fervently and work hard and lay concentrated effort upon certain times and seasons, seeking good for your kingdom that you are prone to answer us and do. And Lord, we do believe that our efforts are somehow related to our prayers. And yet, we would not forget to confess tonight that often when we do not put extra emphasis on services of worship, when we've not collected our corporate prayers for weeks and weeks, as we did for last weekend, when we've not laid such affection and emotion and anxiety upon one focused time together, that we would sometimes assume, therefore, that nothing unusual would happen, that your spirit would not move unusually, that sinners, no doubt, would not be saved in a day like this. But, Lord, we again remind ourselves in your presence that it is not our emphases that save sinners, but it is the gospel of your Son. And when that gospel is declared and proclaimed in its simplicity, you are able to turn poor, darkened sinners to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, O oh Lord, we offer up this sacrifice to you, these words of preaching of the gospel, and ask that you would wet these words with the dew of heaven and send your Spirit upon us as we preach, that we may preach as we ought to preach, and as we hear, that we may hear believing, and hear obediently, and hear humbly. You have taught us, O Lord, that we but must take heed how we hear. Do give us grace tonight as we hear, and even any areas of sin that you uncovered in our hearts this morning, that have caused us grief this afternoon, that have made some perhaps 
somewhat hesitant even to come tonight, somewhat afraid to look at you in the face. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would so deal with us that we would be able to lift our eyes to yours and that we would be able to hear what you now have to say to us with an open heart. Do give us grace as we confess that we left to ourselves know not which way to turn, what to say, and have no strength. So come and be our supply, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The backdrop for this morning's message is what this sermon is about tonight. The ground of our forgiving one another. The fountain. The foundation from which we function when we carry this disposition of a forgiving spirit. When our life together as a church is characterized by such a spirit. The ground, I say, and the fountain and the foundation of all that is the fact that God has forgiven us. But it's not only the ground for our forgiving each other. It teaches us the manner and the degree by which and to which we forgive each other. As God also in Christ forgave you. You forgive each other as God has forgiven you. With the same readiness and breadth. With the same thoroughness. And depth, we are to forgive one another. Because as we look at the Lord and rehearse in our minds what He has done for us in the forgiveness of our sins, we learn how we ought to be disposed one to another. And to be any otherwise disposed is to throw the highest possible insult into what He's done for us and to raise serious questions as to our rights to claim that he's done it for us. I don't know how to imagine it, but again this morning, on the, this afternoon on the way home, I mentioned to my wife how in my own mind I cannot imagine how a person can be a Christian and not have the forgiving disposition. I know how a person can be a Christian and get angry and go through a period in which he remembers others' wrongs against him and resents it. I know how he can do that. I can do that. I've done that. But I don't know how he can stay that way very long if he's saved. I don't know how he can harbor it. I don't know how he can function that way. I don't believe he can. I don't think there's anything in my Bible that would give indication that you can be a Christian and not love your brother as a predominant feature of your life. And an outgrowth of that loving of the brother is definitely a forgiving spirit. But tonight we briefly plan to examine this matter of God's forgiving us. Leaving the concentration of our forgiving one another and laying our meditation upon the subject of God in Christ having forgiven us. First of all, I want to draw your attention to the fact of forgiveness with God. The fact of forgiveness. And in order to do that, I want us to look at another passage. Psalm 130. And verse 4. Psalm 130, verse 4. Now I think it appropriate if we look at the context of this verse in the first three verses of this wonderful psalm. It is a song of a sense. And verse 1 of Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths Have I cried unto thee, O Jehovah? Lord, hear my voice. You get the picture of a man who is deeply disturbed and in the darkness. And he's desperate for God to hear him when he prays. Now this is important for us to remember when we get down over our sins. It is not appropriate nor wise for us when we're down under the load of our sins to whisper to God or to put off going to God, or to go weakly to God, and to point to our sins as our reason. We ought to cry from those depths. 
And we ought desperately to cry, Lord, hear my voice. As it were, may we say it reverently, taking hold of the cheeks of our Heavenly Father and turning His face toward us to get His holy attention, to hear our cry. For we know that if He doesn't hear us, we have no escape. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, that means if He should keep them on His book, Keep account of them. Write them down so as perpetually to remember them. And call them against us. O Lord, who could stand? And the psalmist is saying, I know I couldn't. Who could? No one could. A rhetorical question assuming no one could. But, verse 4 says, there's that holy conjunction again. But, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Oh, the blessed but in the scripture. We remember in Ephesians chapter 4 when it describes our ungodliness, what we were when we were children of wrath, when we were serving the lusts of our mind and living as the rest and we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. It says in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy with the great love wherewith he has loved us, has begotten us or made us alive together with Christ. But God. And this verse tells us, but there is forgiveness with thee. Verse 3 necessitates the conjunction. Verse 3 says, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who should stand? Who could stand? But Apparently, you do not so mark iniquities against your people. Apparently, you do not keep account of our wrongs. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. It is true what our consciences tell us. It is true what the scriptures say to us about our guilt and our liability to God. It is also true what the word of God warns us. Regarding the wrath due to our sin. And the Lord's just threats against us. All of that's true. Do not minimize what your conscience has said to you in the light of the law of God. Sinai thunders righteously against you. And it's all true. The threats of the Bible are real. Your sins have separated you from God. You deserve His wrath. Separation from Him forever. You deserve never to have His holy ear inclined again to your prayers. No one in this room has a right in himself to expect God ever to hear Him in one prayer He utters. No one in this room has an intrinsic right based on any good in you to expect that God will hear you when you cry. But this is also true. There is forgiveness with God. And it is vital that we lay claim to that. That we lay a firm grasp on that truth. There is forgiveness. Yes, there is my sin. God's law has been broken by me. I am guilty. I am condemned. But there also is forgiveness for that sin with God. It is just as true that there is forgiveness as it is true that there is condemnation. Just as surely as I am a sinner, and I am, so just as surely there is forgiveness for that sin with God. There is no sin that can be forsaken that cannot be forgiven. There is no such thing as a sin that can be forsaken, that cannot be forgiven. Remember Saul of Tarsus, who killed Christians, vehemently breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the church of Christ, the beloved bride for which Jesus shed his blood. 
And this man is killing the product of that dying love. This man is eliminating churches, keeping them down, forcing them to pray in private and in secret, keeping them from announcing publicly their sermon topics for the coming week, keeping them from being able to go down the street and announce their faith freely without fear of death, arresting men and women and laying them at the feet of the Sanhedrin, persecuting the church. But God, in the very act of the man's intention to destroy more Christians, saved him, forgave him. And he says to him, he says about himself, I am the chief of sinners. But there's forgiveness with God. Remember the thief on the cross? No possible opportunity to put one thing right that he had done wrong. No ability to make restitution, brethren. Though if you do have ability, you must do so when God forgives you. In his case, he couldn't get down and go put it right. He had not time to go back to all of his acquaintances and ask their own forgiveness for how he stole from them. He had not the ability to do a thing about it. Here he is, utterly pinned to a tree, dying. It's over for him. There's no hope but one. And it seems to be a thin hope at best, does it not? This one on the next cross. This one who is being ridiculed by his own people who wag the head. And who say, he trusted God, let God save him. Why is not God here? Where is now thy God? And this thief somehow came to know this is the one. Somehow God revealed, whether it was through the witness of some previously, or there at the cross, or directly revealed, I don't know. But he knew And when the other thief began to cast dispersions, perhaps they both had done it at the same time. This one began to be convicted. And remember, he corrected his friend and said, we deserve what we're getting. This man doesn't. He saw Christ's perfection. And he confessed him. And he looked to him and cried to him. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood his person. He understood his work. And he believed upon him. And what did the Lord say? Well, I'm sorry because actually what would the world say if I let you have the glories of paradise with me and you will have never done one thing except ask in your entire life. You will have never done one thing except turn to me from this cross that you justly deserve, you thief, and ask. You ever think about that picture before? What's this guy have to offer? Even if he could promise he would never do it again and be a a giver, a tither and an offerer, he can't do it. He'll never give a tithe. Out of that man's pocket never came a dime to give to the kingdom of God. It's over for him. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. Well, more than that, brethren, he wasn't a mere memory. This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Remember that? There is forgiveness with God. Remember the the adulterous woman caught in the act by a hypocritical crowd? She was guilty. And when the Lord released her, he said, do not sin anymore. Don't let yourself live this way anymore. But what happened? Neither do I condemn thee. There is forgiveness with God. I wonder if we have any people in here that used to hate Christians. There is forgiveness with God. I wonder if there are anybody here that one time somebody told you about Jesus and you, you spat in his, on his name, you resisted him, rejected him, profaned him behind his back, blasphemed. I wonder if there are any in here who have taken the Lord's name in vain, who have spoken it in vile profanity and vulgarity. There is forgiveness with God. I wonder if there are any here who have stolen and robbed and cheated other men and you'll never be able to fully to pay them all back. If you spend the rest of your life, you may not be able to get it all done. I wonder if there are you, any of you here who robbed Uncle Sam by, mis, by lying on your taxes, by not reporting your income. I wonder if there are those here who have robbed God by not giving your tithes and offerings to his church. 
I wonder if there are those of you who have lied to God, lived a double life, lied to Him by lying to the church, just as Ananias and Sapphira. There is forgiveness with God. I wonder if there are any adulterous women in this place who were not able to walk down that aisle and present themselves to their husbands chaste. Wonder if there are any in our in our church who could not present a virgin to their spouse. I might actually ask the question on the other side. I wonder if there are any who were able to in our generation. There is forgiveness with God. I tell you, you can't explain how you could enjoy the Lord Himself and bless His name and serve Him with His smile unless you can understand that there's forgiveness with God. Which among us has a right to enjoy the Lord because we didn't do any of those things? You say, well, I'm guilty of none of that. Well, I praise you. But you have your consolation, my friend. Because that's about the only praise you're going to get. You need to understand that your heart is wicked and deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. You don't know your heart, but God does. And yet there is forgiveness with God. Remember Manasseh? Came for 55 years and for the better part of that leading a nation into the vilest imaginable possible sins. Perhaps sinned greater than all of the other kings put together. Wicked, evil Manasseh. And yet in his last days, he came to himself in his captivity. And he turned to the Lord and God forgave him. You ought to read that account sometime. You ought to read his history sometime in the Kings and in the Chronicles. And when you see that God restored him and forgave him, it'll melt you. There is forgiveness with God. When despair says, your sin is too great, your sins are too many, there is no forgiveness for you. The scripture answers, there is forgiveness with God. When Sinai says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Mount Zion, where Calvary is located, says there is forgiveness with God. God has forgiven us in Christ. There is forgiveness with God. You tell me, no, you tell the Lord what sin it is of which you are guilty, for which he is unwilling to give forgiveness. You tell God. Which sin you'll not confess because you know better than to ask because he will never forgive it. You list a sin that he's not forgiven in history. You say, well, pastor, what about the unpardonable sin? You go confess it and see what happens. You know what I did? I played a word game with you. People who've committed the unpardonable sin don't confess it. The crowd that called Jesus in league with Beelzebub and attributed the work of God to the work of the devil are not the kinds of people that confess. They're hard beyond confession. You say, Pastor, I fear that I'm too hard. I fear that I'm a hard-hearted person. I don't know if I could ever get... You confess, you will be. I fear I don't fear God enough. Confess your lack of fear to God. I'm afraid I don't believe the gospel enough. Confess... God forgives sinners. But how can God... I've heard that the only unforgivable sin is unbelief. Well, if that's the case, then none of us is forgiven because we were all unbelievers. I tell you this. If you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go there having been an unbeliever at one time. And you're going to go there as having had your unbelief forgiven. Let's straighten out the Armenian. God doesn't forgive our unbelief because we're noble enough to change and become believers. God gives grace, and unbelievers become believers. But the ground is the forgiveness that is with God, not the forgiveness that is found in something we did. There's a fact to be considered. There's forgiveness with God. And if you come to the Lord's table and don't understand what that's about, don't come. This is not some magic by which we stick into your mouth salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's no advantage given anyone who takes the elements of this table, puts them into his body and digests them without the proper understanding of what they represent and symbolize. 
There's forgiveness with God. But second, notice with me, the place of forgiveness. Having seen the fact of forgiveness, look at the place of it. The text that we read in Ephesians, as God in Christ. You say, well, my translation reads it differently. But the Greek says in Christ. The literal translation is God in Christ has forgiven us. Where is the place of forgiveness? Psalm 130 says there is forgiveness with thee. With thee. Does that bring to your mind an image? In the very place to which sin directed its arrows of rebellion, forgiveness waits. With God. Where? At God's right hand. Psalm 16 tells us that at the Lord's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And one of them is forgiveness of sin. Well, who is at the Father's right hand? What do you see when you look to the Lord's right hand? You see an advocate with the Father. There is forgiveness with thee. There's an advocate with thee. There is the propitiation for my sins with the Father. As we read in Hebrews, now the Lord Jesus is appearing in the presence, in the face of God for us. There is forgiveness there with God. Right there with God. The matter is not uncertain. God is not waiting to be appeased. You cannot appease God. There's nothing you can do to make it right with God. God is not waiting for you to make it right with Him. Don't you see that? <clears throat> there is not forgiveness in you. Do not look into yourself for the secret of your happiness. Brethren, that's not where you'll find it. The psychiatrists are lies who tell you the secret is within yourself. The psychologist is not telling the truth when he says, just look within. You'll find the answer. You will find nothing but a rotten heart within. But when you look away from yourself to God, you find forgiveness there. That's the only place. God does not need to be appeased. He is not waiting to be appeased. God has already provided the appeasement. God gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the meeting place, the appeasement of His wrath. God provided what God required and what God's wrath demanded. Appeasement from us. God has given His Son. But let me just point at one other passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 for a minute. The place of forgiveness. And it's not... Unwise, often when you're reading the New Testament, to think in gospel terms in order to interpret a passage. What relation do these words have to those great themes of the gospel? You're not always going to be able to have a beeline to those things, but often you'll interpret a passage that seems a little bit strange to you. And you may ask, why did he write that? What is the significance of this? By asking the questions, how does this relate to the great themes of the gospel? Ephesians 4, 9. He is quoted from the Psalms regarding the ascension on high of the Lord Jesus and his leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men. In verse 9 he says, now this... This quote he made, he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now at least part of the significance of those words is this. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, through whom we have confidence that we have appeasement from God's wrath, reconciliation, 
the propitiation for our sins, in whom is our forgiveness, this one that's sitting there is the one who descended. You saw him ascend. Well, what is that? He's the one who descended. How did he ascend? Because he first descended. He originally was there. But he left there. And in order to ascend there, he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He died. He became a servant and was obedient unto death. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him, the Lord Jesus, a name which every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to as Lord, to the glory of God. You see what he's saying? The reason that at the the right hand of God there is forgiveness is because the one seated at the right hand of God has come down and dealt with our sins adequately. He has provided the sufficient atonement for our iniquities. That is why you can look there to the right hand of God and you need not add anything to that. You must not add anything to that. It is done. It is completed. It is finished. That's why at the right hand of God... There is forgiveness. Not potential forgiveness. Seated there is forgiveness. And when you come there, and when you meet God there, and when you come to God in that person, you've come to forgiveness. And it can be no otherwise. You cannot come to God in this one without being pardoned. You cannot relate to God in Jesus without being forgiven. That's where forgiveness is, at the right hand of God. At the place, at the very place of God's awful arm of almighty, irresistible power. Where he is able to smush every sinner into oblivion. At that place, at his right arm, there's forgiveness. If he should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there's forgiveness at that same place where if he marked iniquities, he would destroy. There's forgiveness there. But notice in the third place. Having seen the fact of forgiveness and the place where it is obtained, think with me about the result of this forgiveness. Or we could say... The purpose of it. Remember what Psalm 103 said? There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There is forgiveness with God that results in fear. Fear? What? What do you mean forgiveness produces fear? I should have thought he would have said, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be loved. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest feel comfortable to those who have it. But the scripture says, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. What do we mean by that word? Well, it's one of the favorite Old Testament terms. And it appears in the New Testament as well. Referring to a holy Humble, love, worship, and service to God. A holy, humble, love, worship, and service to God. See the wonderful effect of forgiveness upon a confessing sinner. Simon Peter, when he saw the great act of the Lord in the sea, calming a raging storm, said... Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He got acquainted with the power of Christ and it made him see his sin. Isaiah, seeing the Lord high and lifted up in all of his triune holiness, responded not with jumping pews and shouting a new song, but saying, Woe is me, because in the light of what I've seen, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Because mine eyes have seen the Lord. I'm not unclean because I saw. I understand that I'm unclean because I saw the Lord of hosts high and lifted up. Fear 
I'll tell you what it means to fear when God has forgiven you. It means you're afraid to sin again. It better mean that or you have not an inkling of what you've been forgiven of. And you have no idea of what it costs for you to have that forgiveness. If you can look at the blood of the Son, of the sinless Son of God, pouring down and dripping onto that sand outside Jerusalem. And if you can hear the cries of God's right hand saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you not understand the seriousness of your sin, the magnitude of your guilt, and the glorious grace of God in pardoning it and canceling it against you, then I don't know what kind of person you are. I don't believe any of us fully comprehend it. But I would say it's a sinful thing for us not to study it in order to comprehend it. I would say to you, if you believe that you're a Christian, it is your duty. And if you have any conscience at all, you ought to be spending lots of time thinking about that. Meditating on the cross of Christ. What it says about your sin and the depth and the breadth and the height of it. What it says about the love of God and the depth and the breadth and the width and the height of it. Which passes knowledge. But when you get a grip of what your sin is about, you'll be afraid to sin again. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33 and see an interesting Old Testament passage that understands this. Brethren, if I could abolish this shallow, tipsy attitude of hippy-dippy happy time all the time in the face of God's grace, I would nail it to the wall tonight. And, and eliminate it forever from the minds of people in this culture. There's nothing more nauseating than a man talking about the filling of the Spirit and the grace of God running around living in sin. Not paying his debts. Proud. You can't get a word in edgewise because he's too busy witnessing to everybody. But he never listens. He has no compassion. He doesn't seem to understand anybody's hurts because he has the power of God on his shoulders. Jeremiah 33 understands the results of him in a man who's been forgiven. In verse 7, the Lord speaking of Judah and Israel says, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned against me and whereby they have transgressed against me. And this city shall be to me for a name of joy, for a praise and for a glory before all the nations of the earth. Now notice, it's for a name of joy and praise and glory. Yes, Pastor, that's what forgiveness produces. Joy, praise and glory. Amen. But read on. Before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, and shall fear and tremble for all the good and for all the peace that I procure unto it. There is a spirit both in the nations who see it and those who experience it of trembling before God and His forgiveness. It is a knee-jerk, may we say, reaction to God's forgiving grace. Dear brethren, it ought to cause your heart to flutter that you've been forgiven so much. It ought to cause you to be afraid to tread on such holy ground with, it, with your sandals on. You ought not come into this place of new covenant blessing where the promise of the special presence of Christ is given to his gathered saved people. When you're coming to offer sacrifices of praise in the name of Christ to the Father, which is your daily but mainly your Sunday duty every Lord's day, it is the duty of every saved sinner to be in God's gathered church as a member, worshiping as taught, under oversight, in the context of a worshiping church, every time the doors are open, every time a meeting is stated, that's where you belong if you're a worshiper of Jehovah. And when you come to that place, you should never come without a sense of the glory of the forgiveness of sins and without a sense of holy trembling in the presence of such a God. You're afraid to sin again. You're also overcome by an intense delight of pardon. Have you ever known that experience? Let me ask you this. This gets real personal, a little bit subjective perhaps. Have you ever had the experience of sinning and you knew you sinned and you're scared that God's going to get you? 
I mean, you wondered what, whether it was going to be your car that wrecked, whether they were going to discover a $200 deficit in your account, whether it's going to be a child that got sick the next day or whether you were going to get sick. And you just wondered how God's going to get you. Anybody in here ever had that experience? A lot of Catholicism in this room. A lot of Baptist Catholics who live thinking it's tit for tat with God. You get him and he'll get you back. Well, what has happened in some cases when nothing happened? And you tremblingly went to God and said, Oh, Lord, have mercy. I'm afraid of what you might do, but all I've got is Jesus and all I've got is the cross. I don't have anything to offer. Lord, I have no excuse. I know I was wrong. I should never have done it, but I did it. Oh, God, all I have is my bare request and my need. Would you have compassion and have mercy and forgive me? And you've known that God has heard you, and you've gotten up from your prayer and known you're forgiven, and the roof didn't cave in and the car didn't wreck, and God blessed the next endeavor of your life. What has that produced in you? I dare say if you have any conscience at all, it didn't make you sin's no big deal. I'll tell you what it did. He got you scared. In the face of such mercy, you couldn't help but tremble a bit. Because that's a strange commodity in this world. You're not accustomed to that. I would have thought he would have gotten me, but all he did was forgive me and bless me. What a God. That's the result of the forgiveness of sin. It produces a heart that's smitten by the transcendent majesty and glory of God. With Micah, we may say, who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity? Notice he doesn't say, who is a God like unto thee who with a word can fling the stars in the universe? We've got our little Hubble telescopes out there trying to find a couple of them. God with one word set them in order perfectly. We're trying to build a tower to to heaven out of our, our little bricks. If we ever get high enough, God will break the bricks down. He'll confuse us. He's never going to let us get a tower to heaven. If he left us alone, we could get awfully much higher. But here we are with our telescopes, trying to find the origin of the universe. But faith knows that the origin of the universe is by the word of God. But Micah doesn't say there's no God like thee who, with a word, creates the universe and with a word can destroy it. He says, who is a God like unto thee, pardoning iniquity? So he looked at all the gods of the pantheon, and there were none of them that pardons iniquity. They get up one morning, they're in a good mood, and you have a good day. Crops grow, children flourish, Easter time, there's fertility. If you did the right things and made the right incense, the God's in a good mood this morning, things go well. But if Jupiter got up in a bad way, off the wrong side of the bed, watch out. You can, you can burn lots of sacrifices, but you never know whether Jupiter is going to pay attention. He may be in a sour, sour mood today. Read the myth. Read the mythologies. That's the spirit of Zeus and Jupiter. Not the spirit of Jehovah. Who is a God like unto thee? I've looked at all the others. Who is a God like unto thee? Pardoning iniquity. Not pretending it wasn't iniquity. Changing the law. Not lowering the standard. But facing it for what it is and seeing its guilt and pardoning it. Who's a God like that? And who passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He returns, he retains not his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in loving kindness. Who's a God like that? You know one? I know one. I know no other. Besides me, there is no God, he says. And if you could find another God, you find one like that one. The very name Micah means, who is like Jehovah? The prophet was eaten up with that picture. So is everyone that has something of an understanding of what it means to have been forgiven and to have his sins washed away. Psalm chapter 2 has a passage in it that's wonderful. It says, serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Serve Jehovah 
with fear and rejoice with trembling. Remember in the same passage, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for soon his wrath will be kindled. Blessed is everyone that takes refuge in him. Here's the one whose wrath is kindled. Here's the one whom if you do not kiss will kill you in the way. This is the one in whom you take refuge. Isn't that interesting? And here he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's trampling with his brazen feet everything in his way throughout history. None can stop him. He's coming with blazing eyes who see all. His wrath is kindled. And what do you do? You run into him. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. Well, you tell me how you can run into that one and not tremble. You see, this is not some easy Jesus we're talking about. This is not a cheap shortcut to heaven. This is not, well, in the Old Testament, you were saved by works, but now God's lowered the standard. Now all you have to do is believe. That's not what we're talking about. That's not biblical. We're talking about a God who's angry with the sinner every day, and it is to that God the sinner should run for protection. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. The same one who's going to kill him. Well, you figure that out. When your conscience comes to understand how close you were to infinite destruction and God saved you, you will tremble. Have you ever had an accident? A car wreck, perhaps? And it didn't hit you till a while after? That ever happened? Or perhaps seen someone else in an accident and the adrenaline took over for a while and when it came back it occurred to you how close you came. And then you got the shakes. I have. Perfectly relaxed while we were crawling out of the car, calling the police, everything. That's no big deal. Accidents aren't there. About an hour later, it all crashed in. That, that little provision God made in my adrenal gland backed off and here I was. And I couldn't stop shaking. And I thought, why, why wasn't I afraid then? Somehow it didn't all dawn on me how close I came to being sent into eternity. But the righteous are scarcely saved, brethren. And you think about how scarcely you are a child of heaven. And you'll fear. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Not fear him so as to avoid him, but fear him so as to run to him. Not like those who run from him and cry for the rocks to fall on them in the day of his wrath. Not fear that he won't forgive, but fear because he has. Nobody fears God so much as a justified sinner. Nobody. But last, having considered the fact of forgiveness, the place of forgiveness at God's right hand, and the result of it, think for a minute with me about the means of our forgiveness. And I think it's seen in this Psalm 130 in verse 3. If you should mark iniquities... Who should stand? There is no pardon for a man that doesn't understand something of that. Verse 4 doesn't apply unless you have some experience of verse 3. Unless you recognize what your sins deserve and unless you recognize that if God gives you what you deserve, you cannot stand, then there will be no pardon because there will be no real confession. You don't get forgiveness just because you were born into the world. There's forgiveness with God in Christ. And in Christ, God forgives sinners who come to him through Christ, confessing their guilt and their need of a substitute. You see, the reason the liberal church doesn't want Jesus to be a sacrificial lamb, and the reason they hate a bloody religion, as they call it, and the reason they don't want this 
gracious forgiveness and the reason they become universalists and say everyone's going to be saved and the reason they don't preach the law and they call us legalists because we preach it and try to obey it is because they don't want to deal with sin. We had a visitor when Pastor Pizzino preached who went out angry. Apparently didn't come intending to sympathize with what he heard and went out angry and said, I'll tell you one thing, you can't sin in your mind. Remember the introduction of the first sermon? Mental imagination, idolatry in the mind. When the Bible says, serving the lusts of the flesh and the mind, whose minds and understanding are darkened. And yet this young man in his arrogance says, you can't sin in the mind. You know what his real problem is? He doesn't want to face sin at all. And he circulates in a realm of religion that doesn't deal very faithfully with sins that are guilt that are uh, typical of the church in which he gathers only with the sins of people who don't go to that church. Like the sin of not having the gift of tongues. Like the sin of being a Baptist. Like the sin of not having the whole gospel, as they call it. But to tell him he's a sinner in need of a substitute whereby Jesus would get the glory instead of him and his gifts is offensive. I pray God will open his eyes. I don't give up on him. I believe God has a way of... When somebody gets that angry, it means the the seed got planted and started irritating a little soft place in the heart somewhere. When you start being persecuted, just don't, don't give up on that person. He may be frustrated about the gospel. He may have heard enough to bother him. That may be a good sign. You keep praying. Confession is the means by which we obtain forgiveness. Free, open, thorough casting of ourselves on God. Lord, if you give me what I deserve, if you are remembering against me what I've done, I'll not stand. I need help. Upon our repentance, we're forgiven. When we turn, do you remember when you turned to Christ? What did you see waiting for you? Remember? You found him waiting, receiving, and pardoning. You did not have to chase him very far when you turned. You didn't have to tap him a second time on the shoulder and say, it is I. No, no. Your very turning was the result of his work in you. And when you turned, he's ready and you're safe. Look and live, he says. Just as they looked on that brazen serpent and lived. Look and live. Look into me and live. Now, don't minimize your sins. Why should you not minimize your sins? Because they're in God's book, my friend. You come to God and pretend it's not quite as bad as it is. He's looking at the book. He knows how bad it is. Don't try to list enough to get him to forgive you and leave out a few that you're a little uncomfortable about. He sees those. Don't add to your pile of sins lying. Come clean. Come clean, clean. He said, what if I confess more than I'm really guilty of? God will understand. I don't know of anybody that's ever gone to hell because he overconfessed. I know people that go to hell because they confess to the wrong one. I don't think you ought to be afraid of that. I don't know that there's a lot of that in here. And part of the very difficulty of what we preached this morning is that sometimes we want to ask forgiveness of each other. We just don't want to go as far as we ought to go. That's why we do this. Sorry. But once you get a taste of the experience of laying yourself voluntarily before God naked and not hiding anything anymore, call it what it is. Don't get in a habit of three weeks in a row leaving or ending the day with forgive us in many sins. Generic forgiveness. Don't get in that habit. Go back and think through what things you're asking forgiveness about. Name them. Don't say, my thoughts were not as pure as they ought to have been today. Call it adultery. Call it fornication. Call it filth. Confess it. Because when God looks at the book, he sees it as it is. Don't you play up to him and hope that he won't notice how bad it is, thinking somehow that makes it easier for him to forgive. Don't you understand it? 
The blood of his son has washed away our sins. You tell me the limits of the power of that blood. You tell me that it's easier for that blood to wash sin away if there's not quite as much sin. I tell you there's no limits. When we speak of limited atonement, we don't mean that. We're not speaking of the value and the power of the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. You have no need to hide any from God. He sees it. You haven't hidden it. Come out in the open with it. He'll not be surprised. You're not going to inform him of something that he wouldn't have known if you hadn't told him. You're not going to shock him and say, oh, I didn't know it was this bad. Well, let me rethink this offer I've made. No, no. He knows you down to your toes. From your conception, he knew your genes and the DNA and whatever smaller than that he saw. And he watched it develop. All tainted with sin. All saturated with iniquity. And he formed it. And he's watched it through the years. He knows every rotten, selfish, arrogant thought. He knows every lying word. He knows every iniquitous act of hand and tread of foot. He knows. What are you afraid of? Come clean. Say, Lord, I'm And go through the Ten Commandments and just show yourself where you're guilty. I'm an idolater. I love my TV program more than I love my Bible. I love my favorite sport more than I love prayer. I love my money and the way I make it more than I love God's kingdom. It's obvious to me, Lord, I'm an idolater because it doesn't take much to distract me from you. I don't worship you rightly. I broke the second commandment. When I come into your presence, there's all sorts of thoughts that drift and a lack of fervor and a lack of hope and a lack of joy and a lack of faith. Lord, I'm a violator of the second. Lord, I've taken your name in vain. I'm not thankful. I speak your name in prayer without thinking of the holiness of it. Your name drips glibly off my lips. Your work in me, your creation, I hardly notice your name I take in vain. The Sabbath day, which you ordained, the fourth commandment, the first day of the week under the new covenant, I violate continually. My attitude toward it, my obedience in it, my love of it, I'm a sinner. You can list them all. Your authorities, do you honor them all from the heart? Fifth commandment. Are you doing all you can do to save, preserve, and promote life? In yourself and in those for whom you're responsible. The sixth commandment. Are you pure in heart? The seventh commandment. Have you ever taken what didn't belong to you? Fudging on a test. Shortcutting the sales tax. Lying to your boss and punching a clock when you didn't really put in all the hours. Or drawing a salary without doing the work and going home with a free conscience about it. You're a thief. The eighth commandment. Do you honor and esteem highly the sanctity of truth in everything you think and say? And do you guard it and do you live your life in defense of it? Lord, I'm a violator of the ninth commandment. Anything in your heart you wish you had that you don't have. And you sort of wonder when you're going to get it and you sort of can't get it out of your mind. You're a coveter. Lord, I'm a sinner. Confess it. And you know what you'll find? Forgiveness with God. And I tell you this, as surely as the people of God and his beloved church are able to come to these elements, to take them wholly into their body, chew them up and digest them freely, you're just that privilege to come to Christ and take him wholly into your heart, chew him up and digest him, feed upon him freely. There's forgiveness with God. It's focused and centered in his own beloved son. It's free and full, adequate and wonderful. It produces fear in all those that understand the least bit of it. And you'll have it when you come clean with God.
and ask for it. May we pray together. <coughs> Our Father, what can we say? We cannot adorn what is so beautiful already. Our words embarrass us in the light of such grace. But we are thankful and are able to give blessing to your name tonight that, that, that with you, O Lord, in the person and the work of your beloved Son, there is forgiveness for us. And we tonight to believe ourselves to have access to the table that you have set for us. Thank you that you have forgiven us our iniquities. Oh Lord, help your people tonight to believe they're forgiven. Help them to enjoy the fruits of it. Make them to fear before you in the wake of it. Make them to live in the light of it. And as the next passage would tell us, oh Lord, may we be like children of God and imitators of you in loving one another. Forgive us for not understanding and claiming and enjoying forgiveness. Forgive us for not forgiving. And welcome us to the table that reminds us that one has shed his blood and had his body broken. That we may be forgiven all our sins. Oh Lord, is it true that all our sins are gone? Gone? Oh Lord, is it true that you have washed us? That you have sanctified us? That you have justified us. Oh Lord, is it true? We believe it to be true. Help our unbelief. And we're able to ask, say with the, with the great prophet. Oh Lord, who is like unto you? A God who pardons iniquity and delights in loving kindness. How we thank you. Oh, Lord, let us not soon forget and draw cold, grow cold toward these things. May the very thoughts and feelings that welled within us, as even as we heard them, stay with us and feed us and water us and nourish us in the days to come. And may we exhibit in our behavior and in our countenance the fruit of the knowledge of these things. Receive our thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.